to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, your host, and joining me for this first segment at least, you know him, you love him, Jason Cochran. Hey, Jason, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here once again. I should get a locker. I'm here a lot. <laughs> yes, you are. It sounds like you almost were doing a locker. I don't know. I suddenly heard a little jiggly jangly in the background. So on last week's podcast, I had a lovely guy on named John Waterman. He's a former National Parks ranger who has written one of those gorgeous 50-pound heavy books for the National Geographic on the National Parks. And you had just come out with your piece about the new National Park Service app. And I considered asking John if he had seen the app, but then I thought, oh, that could be rude. The guy's written a whole book. Will the new official National Parks app kind of, uh, what's the word, be better for consumers than all of the other books and information out there? I mean, you gave it a total rave on Fromers.com. Yeah, I kind of gave it a rave because we just needed it for such a long time. I'm like congratulating the National Park Service for giving us what it kind of should have had a decade ago, which is sort of a one stop for all your operational information for all the National Park units. Because, you know, up to now, it's been very scattershot. You really had to go to the individual websites of each park to figure out, you know, are you open or which trails are still closed because of the snow? Are there any concerns I need to worry about with the pandemic? All that stuff you had to figure out on your own going directly. And finally, the app is one umbrella for every park. There's lots of maps. You can save things that you'd like to do later. You can save places you've already been to keep track. Uh, It's really, it's really terrific. Now, there's a still going to be an element of the parks having to be responsible for uploading their own material. But they're, they're, I think they're definitely getting on to the rangers about making sure that they always, always have their current information listed on the app. And I'm pleased. But so far, it just came out a few weeks ago, and they're still getting some stuff online. They're working out little kinks. But for the most part, you're able now to get pretty much every bit of up-to-date information about the parks right there through this app that the National Park Service has put out. And it's free. Including, can you book through it? Can you like reserve a campground? And, no, generally or, because those are, if, they, if they're handled by a private vendor, they will hand you off to the private vendor. Uh, and most of these campsites are. They also hand you off for things like webcams to, to your, your web browser within your phone. But within the app, most of like your basic information is now covered. Where are the trails? Can I have a look at the maps? Yeah, like I said, you know, is is uh, is something closed right now because of an avalanche? You can figure it all out right there from the app. It'll tell you, which I think is you know long, long overdue. Right. Well, what about if you're trying to decide which park to go to? Will it be good for that, or would you rather go to maybe Fromers.com or John Waterman? Well, that's the nice book? thing. Yes, there's tons of information. It's a bit dry too. You know, as just as the national parks, they they have to tell you about every little thing they've got inside them. So if you do want an opinion about what's worth going to, you know, what's your favorite? What are the better views? They're never going to tell you that at the national parks. They're just going to tell you what exists. So you still need to get, I think, some outside input to know how to do things the best. But you know, that's where we come in. That's what we've always done. We've suggested, you know, turn left, not right. Don't go at nine, go at 10. You know, that's sort of what we've always been about. So together though, you'll know if you can get in at nine and how much it costs to get in, then we'll tell you, go to this trail to avoid that one. 
they don't tell you, do they tell you how crowded places are? Because I know certain nature areas, like uh, you wrote about this a, a while ago, the uh, Appalachian Trail has said to would-be hikers, don't come in 2021. We have been too crowded and we need to maintain social distancing. We can't do that. You don't think of these nature areas as a, as being you know, as as it, as if it's possible to do be too crowded, but sometimes it is. Do they tell you that type of information? Generally, I mean, there'll be some widespread uh, announcements. For example, if they think the park is going to be crowded and you need to plan ahead for a parking or a parking permit or a shuttle or whatever it normally operates to handle a crowd. But in many cases, well, the Appalachian Trail, for example, goes through much a lot of area that is not a national park, and so that's handled by a conservancy that handles that separately. But in the case of like Zion. They've been planning an individual app that will just be on top of how busy it is in certain locations using sensors. That's a pursuit that Zion National Park is doing by itself. But if there is a notable closure or a warning that you should plan ahead, you will find those on the general app information, uh, the general information sections of each of this major new app that just came out. Very cool. And I add one uh, nice since, thing about this thing, too, is you can download yeah. stuff at home if you want to make sure you have access to it. So that, you know, you know, you're going to be going to Yellowstone and there won't be a great signal. You can download it all into this app ahead of time. So you have the trail maps. You don't have to worry if there's a signal there or not, which is a big concern in national parks that people forget. You can't always use a phone easily. So that's a great feature that I'm glad they added in. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Another cool thing that you wrote about recently was men in kilts. I have not seen it yet, but I have friends who are obsessed with that show. I have friends who are obsessed too. And since you're an expert on Scotland, you have been tracking where they're actually going because apparently there's never been a better travel advertisement for for that country than this show. It or, just makes it look yeah, gorgeous. Sam Hewen, the star of Outlander. Outlander is the show that he's normally on. It's this time-twisting romance adventure type show. And it's been going on for, I don't know, six or seven years now on the Stars Network. And it's done wonders, especially for Western Scotland, uh, where they shoot mostly around Glasgow and in the countryside. Uh, so people have already been you know, clocking Scotland a lot more than they used to. Now that they've done this now spinoff show, which is strictly a documentary show of him and another actor from that program, just going around Scotland, showing you why it's great, showing you why it's surprising, you know, why the, the produce is a lot fresher than you would have thought. You, you know, people always think of deep fried foods and think, but they're showing, you no. there's a great stuff going on in Scotland. Um, that's what Men in Kilts is. It's an eight part series. It's on Sunday nights on stars. And I know quite a few people who uh, claim they're they're tuning in to see Scotland, but they're really tuning in <laughs> to see Sam Hewen because, yeah, you know, he is he is definitely, let's just say, the major draw. <laughs> does he wear kilts the whole time? He does not wear kilts the whole time. He does occasionally when necessary. And they've, I think in the first episode, they addressed the question of whether you should go uh, <clears throat> like a real Scotsman underneath the kilt or not. <laughs> so you will, you, will, you, will, you will get an eyeful. Parade Magazine called him, what does it call him? A feast for the female gaze. And in, indeed, in the, in the second episode, when he goes swimming without the aid of a, a swimming costume <laughs> in the Isle of Lewis, the female gaze wow. has much to feast on. Wow. All right. I, maybe I should get stars. I don't I don't have that that streaming service. 
Yeah, but uh, they, you know they're they're going new a new place, new set of places each week. So every Sunday or Monday, we will put up the newest places they've gone. So we don't spoil it. You have a chance to watch it and then come back to our our article, which is on our homepage, and find out where they went. And you can go for yourself because a lot of the places do tours, or you can repeat what they've done. And uh, so it's a great place to get that information because Men and Kilts doesn't have a website that'll tell you. Uh, you know, I, I would have thought by this point, maybe they would have a partnership with the Scottish Tourist Board, at least. Well, now that they've seen what we've done, they'll probably go, hey, we should do that. <laughs> they've been using it to drive memberships to stars. That's They're most interested in getting people to sign up for stars. So I think that's where they've been focusing their energies. If you go to the Men in Kilt site, they go, sign up. I think it's working. I think it's working just because so many people I know are, are talking about that show. What, it's very sweet some, show. Some, yeah, something people are not talking about. But that will affect your next trip whenever that may be is the fact that all of the major airlines in the United States have agreed to start contact tracing. Uh, they're going to do this specifically for international flights coming into the US. But what that means is that suddenly flyers are going to have to fill out reams upon reams of information. They're going to have to give their cell phone number, their email address, where they're staying when they arrive, a contact number there, lots and lots of information to which I say, what took you so long? To me, this seems like a no-brainer, and I'm happy to spend hours filling out information if it could keep somebody safer or help the government contact trace. I think I think it's so, so important. Well, when I flew from England uh, last March, right, things were going on. I When I flew into America, I had to give all those things. And um, huh. and no one ever followed up with me. So You didn't this, give it to the airline, did you, though? No, it Who'd came into to? immigration when I came in, into the airport, in the customs area. So these systems are only as good as uh, their uh, adherence or their enforcement. So um, it's one thing to give, you know, contact tracing information. Another, do we have contact tracers assigned to take care of this? I, I, I don't know that answer, but I'm glad the airlines will at least have this information so we can get well, it started. Well, I think the difference is, yeah, with the airlines involved, they know where you're sitting. So yeah, right. they would know if somebody came up with a positive COVID test, they would be better able to talk to the people in their immediate vicinity. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's a, a good step forward. I mean, and, and everybody in the travel industry is trying to step forward, trying to get to that next stage. Las Vegas in particular, we have an article about this up on Fromers.com, is really, really gearing up to get back to business as usual. A lot of the major casinos are going to be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week soon. Because some of them have uh, just been going, open for like a weekend or something like you know, yeah. something scaled down recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're going to be going to uh, from 25% capacity to 50% capacity soon. They're going to be starting shows again. David Copperfield uh, is going to be doing his magic show very soon. And uh, interestingly, I, I, you know, I never thought I'd say this phrase, but I feel sorry for Sir Richard Branson because this year was supposed to be the debut of both Virgin Hotels in Las Vegas 
and his Virgin Voyages cruise ship line. And he has spent probably not just millions, but perhaps billions of dollars on these two projects. And then here comes the pandemic. But his hotel is finally going to be opening in late March. It's in the old Hard Rock Cafe building, which is an odd The Hard Rock Hotel building, right? Hard hard Rock Hotel. Right there on the strip. Mm Mm-hmm. No, it's not right on the strip. Oh, it's off, it's it's off like, a little bit, isn't it? On Flamingo? Yeah, it? it's yeah. half a block mm-hmm. off the strip. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a strange location. It always felt a little bit hidden. But it'll be interesting to see if he can make a go of that. And for the Virgin Voyages part of it, they have said they are going to be giving out this year 2,120 free voyages. Uh, they, they're giving out 1,000 voyages right now. They've got a system whereby you nominate a buddy or a family member saying why they deserve a free cruise and they may get one. But you know, with cruising's reputation, when I put this up on Facebook, a lot of people said, I would never nominate a family member. They would think I don't care about them anymore. <laughs> Arsenic and old <laughs> lace. Why don't you go on the Lido deck? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But you know, they did make a good uh, hire over at Virgin Galactic. They, they just hired for their customer experience uh, developer, a guy who spent 30 years at Disney. And he was the main honcho in charge of the Animal Kingdom Park. And he was named, mm-hmm. his name is Joe Rohde. He's like a god among the Disney fans. And he just left Disney, retired after maybe a three or four weeks ago. Disney fans were very, very upset. He went to Virgin Galactic to try to work for them and, and to, to create their experience for them. So that would be very interesting to see what happens. Very interesting. Yeah, that that it's going to be interesting to see if, if his empire can continue expanding or if this current crisis has put a, a major crimp into it. Uh, the final thing I wanted to discuss I wrote an article this week. I write a bunch every week, but this week I did one on which dogs are the most popular worldwide. And I have a feeling a lot of people are thinking, well, how the heck is that a travel subject? And I think of it as a travel subject because I have a dear friend named Rachel, who I tend to travel with every other year. We travel really well together. And so um, in the past, when I was doing the radio show, I would often do uh, trips for our listeners and Rachel would come along just to help me out. So she's been all over the world with me. She's We've traveled also in the United States and everywhere we go, if there's a dog, Rachel is meeting that dog and its owner, uh, which could get annoying, but really it's kind of opened up countries for me. Because I've I've gotten to see what the dog culture is like, and that can be a really charming way uh, to see the culture and to meet people and to talk to them about other things beyond their dogs. So there's this very cute infographic. It was created by a company that matches homeowners with contractors, oddly enough, and. The most popular dog in the world. Were you surprised by this, Jason? Uh, yes, I was a bit. But how did they figure this out? Will you tell, tell us after you tell us the most popular dog? The Rottweiler. Oh, no, that doesn't surprise is, me. Why? Why doesn't it surprise you? I think they have a very general, uh, loyal reputation. And, and if you need a dog to give you protection, they can also do that as well. Well, I think it's because these dogs can do a bunch of different jobs. Mm-hmm. We don't think of dogs as being working companions, but they are in many parts of the world. 
So I think that's why. Yeah, they, they looked at Google searches uh, to see right. which dogs came up on top for top dogs. in searches, top dogs. Hmm. And uh, some things were really obvious, like in Mexico. Yes, they love their chihuahuas. <laughs> that was the that was the top one in the U.S. The top dog was the Australian Shepherd, but in Australia, I think it was the Cocker Spaniel. This so makes very sense to interesting. Because, you know, I've noticed on my travels that the the dogs you see do change per country. And I, I long ago made a connection. There's a very there's a lot of similarity often between the dogs you see laying around on the street and the old men you see sitting at bars and on porches. They have a similar vibe from country to country. Like in Portugal, they're just sort of very sleepy and scruffy. And in Greece, you know, they're a little shopworn, but they're still friendly and they'll come over to you. Um, so it's very, very interesting to, to 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 sort of break it down and say, oh, yeah, well, it's not my imagination. I was sort of seeing popularity of different breeds when I was going from country to country. Right. And the, well, there are some breeds that were, I guess, bred in the destination. Like when you were in South Africa, there's one that I think is called a Borbol. Uh, Do you know how to pronounce a Buerbol, that? I think because the Boers are the old, you know, uh, German Dutch original white settlers in South Africa. Sure. Mm hmm. Yeah, and then there's one. The most popular dog in Europe, Europe came into being through breeding, of course, uh, during the ancient Roman Empire, and it has what sounds like a Roman name, the Corso Cane. Uh, it's a very noble dog, according according to the American Kennel Club. But it, it was really fun because you know when you you're traveling, there are so many parts of the local daily life that I like to soak up. So learning about the different dogs, I don't know. It, it felt like a travel experience. And I guess they feel the same way when they travel abroad themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jason, for starting off the show with me. Uh, next up, we have Lauren Sloss, who wrote the most fascinating article for the New York Times. It's called Travel Quarantine, Enduring the Mundane One Day at a Time. So Lauren, I don't think I've ever started an interview by giving advice, but here's my advice to you. If you can retain the rights to your article, because it's either going to be an amazing Hollywood romantic comedy or a really scary horror film, and they'd both be called Quarantine. Your article was just so fascinating about all of the different iterations that these required hotel quarantines are taking. How did you come up with the idea of doing this? For better or worse, the idea was an assignment, so not <laughs> my idea. But right. I will say that there are some stories where I'm really digging, searching for sources, where it's hard to find someone to speak to an issue with a great clarity or someone to speak to an issue in an interesting way. And this was a story where I was just inundated with people who had quarantine in hotels and had a story to tell about it and a lot to say, which is a great problem to have. It was a really, a really fun piece to report. And it really struck me because it's something that I certainly knew was going on. I was aware of it. But as someone who has not traveled much at all in this last year during the pandemic, 
I was kind of floored with how many people had gone through hotel quarantine and how much it affected them. So let's let's define what we're talking about first. Sure. A, a hotel quarantine is something that is required by the governments of certain countries that anybody coming in has to stay for usually, is it always two weeks in a hotel? No, it's not always two weeks. Um, I spoke to someone in Tunisia who quarantined for a week in a hotel and then was in kind of a pseudo quarantine back home in her apartment after that. Um, two weeks is kind of the the standard. It can go longer if Oof. you test positive at any point in there. Um, and actually, I believe in Hong Kong, it might be longer by default, but I'm not completely sure about that. Yeah. So it's government mandated to enter the country. You have to go through this process. And by and large, it's happening in countries that have controlled the coronavirus quite well and take it very seriously, like like Australia, New Zealand, sure. Taipei, or I'm sorry, Taiwan, mainland China. So not every country does this type of thing the same way, right? Right, right. There's some there's some major differences considering the end result is kind of the same that you're mostly locked in a room for two weeks. Some countries, including uh, Australia and New Zealand, you have no choice in the matter. You arrive, you're on an airplane, and you are bussed, basically, to a hotel that has enough capacity for you and the other people on your flight. In some cases, you might go somewhere very far away that is very far away from your final destination. Um, in New Zealand in particular, you might be required to get on another flight to go to another part of the country wow. and end up in a hotel there. Um, in Taipei, or Taiwan, you're able to choose your quarantine hotel, the Government has put together a very comprehensive list of hotels, breaking them down by price, your room size, your window size, if there are windows right. at all. Oh. Yeah. And then- um, And we should say at this point that people are paying for their own quarantines. It's not right. the government who's footing the bill usually. Right. There are some exceptions to that, but by and large, the expectation is that you will be covering most or if not all of it. And prices can vary a lot. And if you're choosing your hotel, you can opt for a lower end of the spectrum, but you might end up in a pretty pretty small space because of it. Uh, mainland China was interesting. You could pick a district in the city, but not the hotel. And so the person I interviewed picked a higher-end district in the hope that he would end up in a nicer hotel, and that didn't quite work out for him. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so... There's a degree degree of choice there. But yeah, in many, many instances, you just go where you're told and you hope to end up somewhere nice. You hope to end up somewhere with a window that opens, perhaps. Yeah. A lot of hotel room windows don't open. Um, I, love, I love the couple you talked to who picked a hotel near the sea, yeah. so, but then they couldn't even see it, but they, they felt like they could hear the sea at least right, while they were right. stuck in their hotel room. Absolutely. It was, it was amazing the difference. There are some people... I think two people I spoke to had hotel rooms with a tiny little balcony, not really room to spend time on, but right. be able to kind of step outside. And many did not. Many had rooms that with windows that didn't open at all and got no fresh air at all for two weeks. One um, really interesting big difference in New Zealand, generally, if you test negative, you're able to go outside the, on the hotel grounds and walk around. Oh, that's Basically, a help. Yeah. And it, it's very heavily supervised. You have to keep your mask on. You can't interact with anyone else. 
you're checking in with multiple guards on your way to do this. But even that alone, being able to be outside and move around a bit, I think made a pretty big difference for people. Now, I, I was, there was one part of the article where you are profiling a couple and they're having a date night on Zoom. And I thought, oh, when I was reading it, I thought, oh, he, you know, he left his wife at home. No, this quarantine meant they had to be in different rooms. Right. What, what country did that? That was, that was mainly in China. And wow. So this, this was a couple that was relocating, moving to Shanghai for the indefinite future. It could be two years, could be 10. And they started planning this in November of 2019 before any of this started. Right. So by the time they were finally going through this, and this was this was a couple that picked the nice nicer neighborhood, hoping for a nicer hotel, and did not get it. <laughs> they they were they didn't really care. I mean, obviously they would have preferred to be together, but they had been trying so hard to make this move happen and going through so many so many steps to get there that right. an inconvenience like that didn't feel like a huge deal. Apparently, they'd had a friend who'd gone through it with his wife. I don't know, some months before they did. And that friend had figured out a way to game the system a little bit. He he told the Chinese officials that his wife was early in her pregnancy and was very ill and they had to be together. And so he was like, well, maybe you could try that. But they didn't, they just didn't want to risk it. They, right, sure. they wanted yeah. to, they wanted to stick by the book and get through this and start their new life. So they were in the same hotel in different rooms and were FaceTiming and texting and having some Zoom date nights and they'd order food from the same place. He would send her flowers and they get a little dressed up. It sounded, you know, sweet. I mean, you can put up with a lot for two weeks and right, that was right. a nice creative way to pass some time. And there was one person who was a major uh, exercise uh, freak. Yeah. Uh, what did he do? He ran a half marathon around his hotel room. That blew my mind. I mean, I'm a pretty active person and I can imagine maybe doing some hotel room yoga, but that is a level of dedication that really boggled my mind. And I'm honest, I probably would have been watching a lot of Netflix and ordering a lot of delivery. <laughs> but also, it, it was not an easy thing to do, not only because of the running, but because he couldn't get his, his air conditioning very yeah. high. Yeah, he was saying, I think the AC was permanently set at 22 degrees Celsius and could not be adjusted, and he could not open his windows. So he would be able to get it down, I think, to 18, but it would only stay like that for about 10 minutes and would bump back up. And so he finally just gave up. But power to him for making that happen. <laughs> yeah. And and another interesting one was the family who right. had to do this. Yes. How do you keep children from bouncing off the walls when you can't go out for two weeks? Well, these parents are geniuses or saints or both, but they really, they seem to have a really nice system worked out. Joy, the woman I spoke to, packed a bag, a quarantine bag for, for her daughter who's four, she has a baby as well, but the baby I think was mostly Ooh. sleeping wow. and right. kind of hanging out doing tummy time, less, less in need of actual activity. And every day her daughter would pick something out of the quarantine bag. So it was something to look forward to. And it was this exciting part of the day. And they did a lot of arts and crafts. They had a big paper horse that they made and pasted up in their window so that everyone could see it right. in the window from across the way. And every day they would decorate a different part of the horse. So one day they do the legs and one day they do the tail. One day they do the head. 
So kind of creative things like that to keep them going. And it sounds like her daughter did do a little bit of online school. They're based in California and time right. zone. Well, that and helps. Yeah. Able to work And out. a lot of people would stay busy by working because they right. were working remotely. Yes. But her the, husband the, actually was working yeah. remotely from the bathroom of their hotel room <laughs> to get a little private space. Um, I guess he, he had kind of a standing desk set up on the counter and would occasionally perch on the ledge of the tub. But they just, they made it work. They got through it. See, I can see the movie. You're going to go from room to room, and then maybe somebody across the courtyard falls in love. I don't know. And food. Food became the center of the day. I thought it was fascinating that in some places you could only get food from the hotel, whereas other places you could you could order out. Right. You know, as I think about it, I think many places you could order out. Tunisia, perhaps, no. But a lot of places had would make it possible for you to order delivery through outside services. Some you had to order during very specific times so that hotel staff weren't running up and down to the quarantine sure. floors delivering things. But most people who did that considered it a pretty big, big game changer. Being Although able to- alcohol was, was uh, they wouldn't give you unlimited alcohol, right? No, not, not in most cases that I, I learned about. In Australia and New Zealand, it was limited to a bottle of wine or six beers per person per day. And even the the man who ran a half marathon in his room, he'd ordered a, a case of beer from the grocery when he arrived with 24 bottles in it. And the hotel sure. rationed him. They 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 would wow. deliver six a day. And he was a bit put off about that at first, though he acknowledged that six was plenty for him. It was more the, the principle of the thing. Well, what was the thought process behind rationing? I think the idea is to avoid belligerence. You know, you're in a kind of challenging situation where you're stuck in your room all day with unlimited access to to booze. It could get a little rowdy. You might <laughs> you might try and break the rules. You could get a little aggressive. I could I could see situations in which that would be problematic. But but pe- people couldn't get out of these rooms, right? They didn't have a key. Were no. they locked in? Almost. Almost everyone was in a situation where they didn't have a key. I think there were a couple where they did, but again, heavily monitored, could not go out to the hall. They really just needed to stay put. Wow. We're going to look back at this someday, you know, and and look at everything we went through, but absolutely fascinating article. Thank you so much, Lauren, for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this week's show. Uh, It strikes me once again, what crazy times we're living through. I remember when this pandemic started, uh, or when we became aware of it here in the United States in in, uh, February, March, and I thought, what will we write about? What will we discuss on the radio show, now the podcast? What will we do on Fromers.com? Because nobody was traveling, and yet, and yet... There have been so many cultural changes, so many fascinating developments, so much going on that we actually haven't ever fell short in terms of having enough to do. It's been an incredibly busy time with the exception of our books, which are in hibernation is what I like to say, because no secret, the world is changing drastically. And we want our books to be useful. There's no point in researching them right now because 
a lot of things are going to be changing. I write the New York City book, and I'm spending a lot of time, sadly, going onto Fromers.com and unpublishing reviews of hotels that are gone forever and restaurants that probably aren't coming back. So we will be redoing our books, hopefully in a couple of months. It looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel now, but we will be redoing them and bringing out what we hope to be the most current, useful, journalistic products out there for travelers. A lot of travelers forget if you get free information on the internet, well, somebody probably is paying for that. A lot of the travel information you can get for free is disguised marketing. And so you're not going to hear about the negatives. You're not going to hear about the hard choices you have to make. You're not going to get impartial advice. What makes the most of your limited, precious vacation time. So this is all a long way of saying, we hope you'll support us. Please come to fromers.com. Please sign up for our newsletter. Maybe go out and get a Fromer guidebook. We still have some of the ones printed post-pandemic on sale. They have a lot to say about culture and about history. And the new ones will be, as I said earlier, fully up to date. All of this is a labor of love. It's a family business. Dad and I speak daily. Uh, We're in constant contact with the authors we have all over the world. We are so proud of our core team, at which Jason Cochran, who you heard earlier, he's at the head of our core team. He's the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com, and he does an amazing job, just as he does on this podcast. If you like what he does on this podcast, Boy, oh boy, do you want to see what he does on Fromers.com as editor-in-chief. He's he's a wonder. All right, that's enough for today. We thank you so much for listening. And to anybody who's traveling, even if it's just across the street, even if it's a, a driving trip for a day, or maybe it's around the world, you never know nowadays, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Watching K.